How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I had to have mine removed. And that was a lot of fun because we lived on the second floor of an apartment building and uh, going upstairs. Going upstairs. I wanted to uh, start the recording so we could hear about. Todd's assist. He had to have a root. <laughs> oh, it was fun. It was fun. Yeah. <laughs> Justin just had one removed from his back. I had one, and Jennifer watched the the removal. I don't know if this is the same kind of thing you guys are talking about. I just had like a lump under the skin. It was on my back, and uh, and they had to you know like cut it open and cauterize it. And I was awake. Yeah. I could hear it and smell it, but uh, they cauterized oh! it like with heat. Yeah, like carterized oh, oh the wound God. like while it was happening. Huh. Um because I just got was, stitches on mine. She said she said what they pulled out was like bigger than a golf ball. Like oh, was, mine was not that big. <laughs> she's like, I don't <laughs> even know how it was in there. Like she was like, it popped out. And she was like, Ugh. it was really big. <laughs> she was like, Ugh. and she oh, said, God. like blood spurted out. Like a Cronenberg movie, I guess. Yeah, the, it's <laughs> a really good conversation to get into as we're uh, when they pulled it out. She's like, even the, she's, she said even the doctor would like like blood shot straight up in the air, and the doctor and the nurse were just like, "Whoa, hey!" <laughs> They're uh, like, "How are you is... doing?" And uh, I was like, "Good." And I guess whatever they were using, like I was holding on to the 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 table. I would not table. It was the bed or whatever. I was holding on to it and they were like you gotta let go of that because i guess the thing they carterize with is electric and they're like they're like oh yeah don't don't grab the metal like cool we'll yeah yeah <laughs> oh like, like, yeah man. that's how electro got made i think that's his origin story is <laughs> they were removing an assist <laughs> oh man this is good content here this is good stuff going into another david cronenberg oh, episode. Yes. old band problems <laughs> oh yes know, for real right <laughs> three middle-aged white guys talking about their medical procedures <laughs> wonderful welcome to cinema shock <laughs> yeah here we are oh. yeah so yeah well well hello and welcome to Cinema Shock, the podcast that explores stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horde. And I'm Justin Bishop. And I'm your other co-host, Mr. Todd A. Davis. Thank you so much for joining us for this week. Uh, and uh, uh, Cool. Excellent. Good job, John. <laughs> Did you forget who you were? Yeah, I, I, I'm new to reading. Sorry. And I'm your other co-host, Mr. Todd A. Davis. Thank you for joining us this week for our look at one woman's obsession with a fur coat in the second part of our series called The New Flesh, The Body Horror of David Cronenberg. That feels like one of those descriptions of this movie that you read on like like charter, like spectrum where, you know, you're looking at the upcoming and that's how they describe rabid is yeah. one woman's obsession with a fur coat. Yeah. <laughs> We're learning a lot about Cronenberg, and a lot of this is like the the inside stuff that eats you alive or something comes mm-hmm. out. Even when I was researching this time, I found like a story about like that apparently he saw the fly, like the the original fly. Not yeah, he didn't. Not his own fly. He didn't, he didn't. see his own fly. <laughs> he did. 
which is where <laughs> the story was going. But as a kid, he saw the original and even got into a debate with the usher at the time about the head uh, swapping part that like how scientifically implausible that seemed. I mean, he's not wrong. What a yeah. what an annoying kid! <laughs> you know, what an annoying kid he must have been. But but you're starting to see. Like I, I was I was really interested in you know like last time we talked about like his uh, psychology or or whatever and like this mm-hmm. the science thing is like a huge part of it. And I never thought I always thought Cronenberg and I thought body horror. And now with this one, we're really getting into no. He's also like science and the exploration of science is a huge one and how it can fall apart and that sort of thing which is something that i think we're i mean we saw it last week we saw it this week we're going to see it again over and over again uh medical technological advances gone awry basically in like his is his study in college you know that's when he became really obsessed with i read a little bit more that he was he was actually a big study there or the stuff that he was interested in was not only just the body, but also disease and especially STD type diseases and how they work within the body. And so like, I guess that is where all of this comes from. He's just, he's just morbidly curious about shit like that. Cause he just seems so just such a like normal dude. It's it's kind of a, it's kind of like, you know, I feel like this is the best ex- this is the best kind of exploration of something like that. It's kind of like watching, you know, you can watch National Geographic or you can watch Wild Boys and watch them get stung and bitten by all these things and be like, oh, okay, big ants, they hurt a lot. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> that's, that's the result. That's the result of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So as we discussed on our last episode, uh, Cronenberg's debut commercial feature, Shivers, was it was a big success. Really uh, inexpensive movie to make. I think, what did it cost? Like 100 grand or something, 180 grand. Yeah. Uh, but it became one of the most successful Canadian productions of all time at the time that it was released. But its release was not without controversy, especially since it was financed by the Canadian government's newly formed Canadian Film Development Corporation. And it got some bad press, uh, the bad press on Shivers, which was not regarding its quality, but regarding the question as to whether or not the taxpayers should be funding this type of movie. Uh, It did stall Cronenberg's career for a couple of years, according to him. That's why his career stalled for a couple of years uh, was because of that. And it due in a large part because that press led to the CFDC being kind of reluctant to finance his next film because they didn't want to be kind of mired in that kind of controversy again. But eventually, about two years after Shivers, Cronenberg was able to follow that up, was able to release another film, one that would prove to be less controversial than the previous, uh, but no less shocking to the audience. And that's the movie we're talking about today from 1977. It is David Cronenberg's Rabid. All around her, people are dying, and only Rose knows why. You gotta come quick. You gotta come quick and get me. It's Rose. It's gotta be. Something's happened to Rose. Don't scream, don't panic. He's dead, and the dead can't hurt the living rabbit. The Prime Minister was reluctant to officially declare a state of emergency, but as any citizen in the streets can tell you, martial law has come to Montreal. Shooting down the victims is as good a way of handling them as as we have got. You can't trust your mother. Your best friend. The neighbor next door. 
One minute, they're perfectly normal. The next, rabid. Pray it doesn't happen to you. Rabid. I saw like okay, on this. Mr. Mr. Cronenberg, uh, you know, we we have some concerns about uh, your films and, uh, you know, we, we were just reluctant to cut another check unless you get like a major star or something like that. Do you have anybody in mind? <laughs> sorry. Sorry. I only, I only watch porno. <laughs> <laughs> that is the thing is that's like, well, we'll get into it, but Cronenberg had no, oh, okay. was, he had no idea who he was casting in this movie. When yeah. He, he, he claims to have never seen the movie. So yeah, we'll he, see. We'll yeah, see. David. Okay. <laughs> Rabbit's production, uh, this is not going to be as kind of a juicy of a story as the making of Shivers. Shivers had a lot uh, that kind of led up to its creation. It was made much more guerrilla style, kind of, I guess you'd say, uh, because it was it necessitated that because it's such a small budget and he had like two or three weeks to film the thing. Uh, after the box office success of Shivers, Cinepix, which was the company that had produced that film, they wanted a new script from Cronenberg. So they commissioned him to write something up. And the one that he offered them was Rabbit. Although its original title was Mosquitoes, which I'm assuming is because of the little phallic proboscis that comes out of Rose's armpit. Okay. Kind of looks like a mosquito's yeah, nose like, thing. Totally. I don't know. Um, it also I mean, kind of goes back to that thing we were talking about last episode where Cronenberg's really bad at naming movies. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is just like, I mean, this movie's pretty similar to Shivers. It's got the epidemic, the mm -hmm. experimental science. Uh, you got your 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 typhoid Mary woman there, mm -hmm. Rose. Uh, but now he's out, he, he's expanding. It's not just in like a little apartment. He's, he's right. in all of all of uh, Montreal. So, yeah, but all of this is right up Cronenberg's alley. Apparently he's like writing all of this stuff at the same time, by the way, which I found fascinating. Like I saw like somewhere like the brutal of what stuff like all of his movies like are all like happening yeah or i mean not all of them obviously but <laughs> yeah he, he writes a lot of stuff at the same time well i know he had written dead ringers already by this time and nobody wanted to do it and dead ringers doesn't come out for another decade mm. yeah well he had uh what was it that that i was hearing the story on uh kermody dan kermody we don't give him enough credit by the way that guy uh Don Don Carmody is who I'm talking about. He was one of the producers that was brought in to uh, assist Ivan Reitman and uh, helping Shivers get made. He deserves a little bit of love. He was uh, he was a guy who was also going to film school through this thing. Uh, he had tried to go to actual film school and didn't get anywhere, but he was like one of those guys that came into Canada and there's not much of a film industry, just like Cronenberg. He talks about, you know, you had the French Canadian movies out of Montreal and Quebec and you had Cinepix and, uh, his a professor from film school used him for cheap labor and sent him to a shoot on in Vancouver. And uh, anyway, he made friends with Julie Christie. Now, this is a lot of story huh. for this guy, but he, <laughs> he got a, assigned to drive Julie Christie and she really liked him. So he just became her driver. And then, that was on McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Uh, yes. Yeah, that was the shoot. So he was going to film school. Sit your asking. He was going to film school <laughs> and, uh, his professor would use some of the students for cheap labor. And they were like, I got a friend who's doing something in Vancouver. Somebody wants to go work on a set. And he says he knew this uh, program that had just started called like drive away, which is like, you could uh, be paid to drive a car across Canada or go to like Western Canada. 
and uh, you figure out how to get back, but you just drive them there so they can sell these cars. And uh, so he did that to get to Vancouver and it was for McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And there he was working with Julie Christie and became her driver because she really liked him. And uh, anyway, uh, that led into him meeting up with John Dunning and Andre Link, and they hired him as their first head of production. And then for Shivers, like basically he just describes they, uh, they came in one day and they're like, hey, here's a guy and he's going to be working on a horror movie and we need you to help him. And that guy was Ivan Reitman. So then the next day they went and met David Cronenberg and they were like, Hey, we're here to help you make a movie called shivers and, or, you know, whatever they called it at the time. And then that's how that all happened. But he's assigned back to this movie again. He's him and Ivan Reitman, obviously. What a wild ride though, to like, he, he gets hired. He's, he's a driver for Julie Christie while she's making like kind of a prestige picture for Robert Altman or, you know, and yeah. that, that ends up segueing into him making this scuzzy little Canadian horror movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, but it uh, kind of kicked off his career. And he talks about that, that like he, a lot of his story, he tells about how people were just like, so up in arms about shivers when it came out. And he thinks it's hilarious that Cronenberg's like a cultural icon now. Cause he yeah. remembers like the heat everybody got uh, for, for making that movie uh and he says it he says it was mostly because this was the first like exploitation film that the cfdc had gotten behind yeah. basically and uh and so that article came out and i was i was reading an article with uh or a thing with um oh what's that guy's name calum uh calum vattensdahl oh uh, that's the guy who wrote they came from within the the book about canadian horror movies yes that yeah. is him and uh he got a chance to talk to that uh, writer, by the way, that Fulford guy who wrote the Saturday Night movies. Thing. Oh, yeah. Like 30 years later, he said he still he's... hated that movie. <laughs> and he refused uh, to believe. At least he's standing made... behind his, his beliefs, I guess. <laughs> he refused to believe it had ever made money. But... <laughs> well, but that Don Carmody guy just just to round him off. He ends up going on to I mean, he's still working right now uh, as a producer. He just moved down to L.A. And this kind of became his bag, like movies that weren't super successful at the time and become like something happens that makes them get like some kind of huge cult thing behind them like he he, he obviously goes he, he does meatballs i think which is like his last thing on cinepix and then he goes and does like terror train and porkies and uh he's the producer that like helped get boondock saints made and yeah. stuff like that yeah as we mentioned in the intro the cfdc was kind of reluctant to fund Cronenberg's next film because of the controversy behind their funding of Shivers. And that goes back to that, that article by that uh, writer that Gary was just talking about. Uh, but also since Shivers was the only thing that they'd funded that had ever made any money up to that time, they couldn't exactly turn down the opportunity to fund his next because they had a pretty good idea that it would, it would, there'd be a return on their investment like there had been before. So it's kind of hard to turn that down from a business standpoint. They just didn't want the press. So they did, end up funding it but they publicly kind of distanced themselves from the film they didn't want it to be quite as apparent that this movie was as a result of their uh, their money it is in worth for, saying that, in yeah, for a they, penny in for a loony it is i don't even know what that means it, it is worth saying that yes they Canadian, i mean without like them shivers joke. would have never been made or like cronenberg you know would not be who he is you know even though they're like distancing themselves they're critical to, oh yeah to the whole process because there wasn't the the private funding at the time that everybody was was used to uh but 
he uh so so Cronenberg got canceled for a little while essentially I guess <laughs> essentially he, he was yeah. he was making like little half hour tv dramas and stuff like yeah uh, he was still doing some television and things like that but you know he was he was around he just yeah he, he, he wasn't out work. of work yeah he just wasn't able to get an, another original film off the ground quite yet Cinefix uh, uh, took up for him too. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off again, but they, um, I, I was reading, they, they had started like a, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, a campaign. They, Cinefix had taken up for him starting a campaign called, uh, well, the big sign they would have going around was like, is there a place for horror films in Canada's film industry? And then they had huh. this like whole, they would do like write ups about how there's a place for everything in Canada's film industry and blah, blah, wow. blah, which is, it's weird because they got so much heat for this. And uh, Carmody says that they were like, they thought David Cronenberg should be committed. Like that's how the, some of the people in Canada thought they were like, this guy's a nut job and needs to be institutionalized. <laughs> and uh, Carmody and Ivan, they were like, we're immigrants to Canada. And they kind of wanted us deported. <laughs> it was like, it got, he's like, it got really heated. But when you think about uh, that Cinepix is, early start in the industry is in softcore porn. It's real weird, like the standards here. Yeah, and and there were other horror movies being made in Canada around this time. Uh, you know, like Black Christmas came out in 1974, uh, which is directed by Bob Clark. Although maybe because Bob, Bob Clark is not Canadian. I think he was American who was working in Canada at, uh, for most of his career because he made Porky's as well. And, you know, of course he goes on to make a Christmas story, but yeah, for some reason there was this kind of stigma around horror, even though Cronenberg was not the first person to make a horror film in Canada, you know, but, but his was the first one to actually be funded by the Canadian taxpayer. So maybe that's why it was, there was a little more pressure on him and his films. Mm. So Ivan Reitman came back aboard this time. He produced the film as he had done on Shivers. And he brought along a cinematographer named Rene Verzier, who was most known at the time for being the uh, director of photography on a 1973 movie called The Picks, starring Karen Black and Christopher Plummer, which is another Canadian horror movie. Uh, Reitman also brought in editor Jean Lafleur, who had done a film called Death Weekend the year earlier, which was also produced by Cinepix. So, He's bringing in these crew members because they were guys who had worked in the genre before. They'd worked in horror and they'd worked in exploitation films. And he knew that they could work efficient, efficiently while still putting out a good product. They were also, you know, at least Jean Lafleur, he had worked with Cinepix before. So he kind of knew their way of work. Joe Blasco was brought back to do the film special effects. This time he had an assistant, a guy named Bird Holland, who had done the effects on other low-budget genre films like uh, Lamora and Ted Post's The Baby, which are, are a couple of other well-known Canadian horror movies. The assistant thing, I think, happens because, like, uh, last time I was interested in Joe Blasco, too. Like, he is just a guy like Reitman just found, and he's yeah. out of L.A. Uh, I was I had assumed the last episode he was going to be Canadian, but uh, he's, he's just one of those guys Reitman knew and brought him to Canada. This time, he didn't actually even come to Canada. He just built stuff and sent it. It's more complicated than Shivers, like the whole setup, but the makeup effects were kind of less so. Like they, yeah, they, yeah. they can make stuff and just send it into them. Reitman also, I think he's related to porno because <laughs> this soundtrack sounds like a porno soundtrack. At well, 
Yeah, I mean, a little bit. They're using library tracks here again, like they had done on Shivers. They still couldn't afford an original score. So uh, Ivan Reitman fulfilled that role as well on this film as the, uh, I think he's credited as music supervisor is what they say, but basically he's the guy who went out and went through all these libraries of, of music that they were allowed to use and essentially you, created a score. But do you think he went, oh yeah, I'll do the research, or he's like, no, I got one. It's perfect. Once they found out who their leading lady was going to be, he was like, oh, she like comes with like entrance music. Like, oh, wait, what, what does she what does she do with entrance music? <laughs> All right. So for the cast, Cronenberg brought back Joe Silver. Remember that guy who, who was in Shivers that we liked so much? The other yeah, producer there. Matrix. Um, <laughs> but he had a similar role here that he'd had in Shivers. I mean, he plays kind of a similar guy. Uh, and then Shivers, Velasta, Verarna. Am I, do you think I'm pronouncing that correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Ron Melodzik also returned in some small roles. Uh, Melodzik plays like a, a patient at the uh, the clinic, the uh, plastic surgery clinic. I think he's only in a couple of scenes, but uh, he's returning here as well. Uh, so for the male lead, Cronenberg cast a guy named Frank Moore, who he had just collaborated with on an episode of one of those TV shows that he was working on during the uh, two-year interim between movies, a CBC uh, series called Teleplay, uh, which is a boring name for a TV show, but the episode was called The Italian Machine, and that was a story that showcased Cronenberg's fascination with race cars and motorcycles, which is, a, of course, a fascination that bleeds over into the opening minutes of Rabbit as well, and one that will rear its head in future Cronenberg films as well. Cronenberg the, was super it, into motorcycles it, at this it time. The sequel, like, is it the sequel to uh, Italian Stallion? Yeah, it's, that's it. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> is that a porno so, movie? <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, I think it is. Yeah, first Sylvester Stallone. It is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Cronenberg was really into motorcycles at this time, though. He like he was a motorcycle. He's a gearhead. Uh, he doesn't seem like he would be. Like if you look at him and hear him talk about his movies, but once he starts talking about cars and motorcycles, like he is very much a gearhead. And he actually rode a motorcycle, like a Ducati, that he owned to the film set every day. That was his mode of transportation during this time. Uh, so he, you know, he does. After this, he does actually make a movie about race cars, but uh, it's that's always been fascinating to me for some reason because he seems like such like this sort of intellectual who you wouldn't think that like race cars and, and working on engines would be something he was into, but he very much is. Uh, Kermode says he has like a, a strict edict on the set of Rabid they had on uh, Cronenberg. He was like strictly responsible for him and it was like, no filming could take place near anywhere that a gearhead would be interested in or stereo stores. Like, because they would, he said you would literally lose Cronenberg for hours. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so for the lead role in the film, one that serves as kind of both the film's heroine and protagonist or antagonist and protagonist, I guess is the best way to say it. Uh, she said she's a little bit of both. She is the monster and the victim at the same time, uh, a very sympathetic monster, if anything. So to, for, for that role, Cronenberg wanted a newcomer by the name of Sissy Spacek, uh, the, who had, mm-hmm. he'd recently seen her in Terrence Malick's The Badlands or Badlands. Uh, she was not very well known at the time, but he saw her performance. He liked it. But Rabbit's producers, uh, including Ivan Reitman, they didn't like Spacek for the role. They they felt she was one too freckly, which is an odd uh, thing to, to care about. And they didn't like her accent. She has a pretty strong Texas accent, and they didn't think that fit the film. 
And you I know, am sure we just, they, we just think she we just think she talks kind of funny, yeah. <laughs> I think that they would later regret this decision since her star making turn in Brian De Palma's Carrie was actually released while Rabbit was in production, and of course we all know it was a huge success. And in fact, there's a scene uh, late late in Rabbit where uh, Rose like she kills a guy in a movie theater and like a porno theater, I think mm-hmm. it seems to be. And when she walks outside and she's walking down the street, you can see the Carrie poster on the wall behind her. So I'm I sure they were all, yeah, they yeah. were all kicking themselves because <laughs> at the time that they were filming this, there was probably no hotter name in horror. Like if you wanted to cast a, a female lead in a horror film, Carrie, uh, uh, Sissy Spacek would have been the ideal person to do, uh, but they had already moved on by that point. So Reitman suggested casting a porn star by the name of Marilyn Chambers in the role uh, because he had kind of heard that she was looking to break into mainstream film. So we're going to have a little sidebar about Marilyn Chambers here because I I think, first of all, I can't think of another episode that we'll ever do on this podcast that we would need to talk about her uh, to to a... a, a That kills my next series suggestion. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I also think that her story is very interesting. So she began... She, she began her career as a model while she was in high school, even landed some small roles uh, in some movies, especially there was a movie called The Owl and the Pussycat that starred Barbara Streisand and George Siegel. Uh, and she was she had a small role in that, but under a pseudonym, under the name of Evelyn Lang. I mean, Marilyn Chambers is a pseudonym as well. She had, she had had a little bit of film work and because she wanted to be an actress. And when that film was released in 1970, she was sent to Los Angeles and to San Francisco on a kind of promotional tour, but she didn't receive any other roles or any other offers for roles as a result except in a low budget film from 1971 called together in which she does appear nude so she was already comfortable uh, with that even early on Uh, together by the way this film was uh, directed by future friday the 13th director sean s cunningham and it also marks the first official credit by wes craven as a producer and of course, Sean Cunningham and Wes Craven would later go on to collaborate on Craven's directorial debut, The Last House on the Left. So there's a fun little little connection there. And I say first official credit by Wes Craven there uh, because uh, he definitely made some other films prior to Last House on the Left under pseudonyms because he was also making porn. Yeah, apparently, I mean, Marilyn Chambers, I think her name was, um, was it like Marilyn Lee Briggs or something like that? I read some stuff with Joe Bob talking about her. Because uh, he was Marilyn, like, Marilyn Ann Taylor. Well, no, I think that was her married name, but Marilyn Briggs was her. Yeah. Her, uh, the name she was. He, I remember him saying, like, uh, we, we, we may be related. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> but that's, she, not his, that's not his real name. <laughs> <laughs> she, she had moved to Connecticut. Yeah. And like Sean Cunningham was like her best friend or something. Like, and, and so they, they grew up together. But like, oh, uh, really? Huh? Yeah, but I don't know, kind of crazy. And she's not from whatever story you might think about her. I mean, I think her dad was like an advertising exec and uh, her mom was a nurse. And so she just, you know, she was just a girl with big stars in her eyes. Yeah, I mean, she kind of fell into doing porn, essentially. So what, what happens is she ends up moving to San Francisco because she kind of, for some reason, decided that, San Francisco was kind of the entertainment capital of the world. Uh, I don't know why she picked San Francisco over Los Angeles, where she had also visited, but that that was her way of thinking. So she moves to San Francisco, and she held several jobs while she was there, including being a topless model and a bottomless dancer. Uh, Now, do you think that means that only the bottoms are off? 
and oh. the top is still on like full sweater like i saw your notes up. and i was curious about that myself so so you well, they say bottomless it's, answer. it's when you um you know because san francisco is slightly further north it gets a little bit more chilly there so you want to you protect your chest liam neeson said that to bruce wayne and in, in batman begins if you recall <laughs> listen you rub your chest and your arms uh legs and vagina will take care of themselves that's that's how it works I don't remember him telling Bruce Wayne that his vagina would take care of himself. It's, it's science. You know, they learned the, <laughs> they learned the powders, you get the spikes on their hands, and then you learn about how to keep your vagina warm. <laughs> so, so she starts looking for work in theater and dance groups in San Francisco, and she wasn't having a lot of luck when she came across an advertisement in the San Francisco Chronicle for a casting call for what was being billed as a major motion picture. So she gets excited. She's like, this is my chance. She rushes to the audition only to find out that the film in question was in fact a porno, which would be called Behind the Green Door. So Mm -hmm. she's like, fuck this. And she's like, this is not what I thought. She's about to leave when the film's producers, Artie and Jim Mitchell, who are brothers, uh, they noticed her resemblance to Sybil Shepard, who was, of course, a huge star at the time. And they invited her upstairs to their offices to kind of explain the film's plot to her. Now, we could do a whole episode, by the way, on Jim and Artie Mitchell, because their story is pretty fascinating as well. And it ends with Artie, he's turned into like a cokehead alcoholic who's kind of running the business into the ground. And then he is shot and killed by his brother. Uh, there was a movie made about it called Rated X that I think I Charlie Sheen in it. Uh, oh, but yeah. <laughs> Wasn't it like Charlie Sheen and Emilio Estevez? It may have been. I never saw it. I just remember it. Oh, yeah. And I know that's about these guys. One Mitchell kills the other with a 22 rifle and uh, only gets six years at San Quentin because the judge kind of agreed that the brother was being obnoxious. (laughs) He deserved it. (laughs) He was basically the judge is like, yeah, he had that coming. Yeah. (laughs) But but for what it's worth, at the funeral, one of the eulogies was delivered by Marilyn Chambers. Oh, well, nice, I guess. So that's not something everybody gets. <laughs> well, who, who plays Marilyn Chambers in that? In the movie? Oh, that's a good yeah. question. I wonder if somebody, surely somebody plays Marilyn Chambers in it, right? If it's a biopic about them, this was a pretty yeah big part of their lives. Um, someone named Tracy Hudson mm-hmm. plays the role, and I don't know who she is. This is her main credit that she's known for according to imdb the second one is for a role on a tv show called pacific blue which i believe starred mario lopez back in the night is that the one where they uh, rode bikes no that that wasn't that one it's like a hawaii a hawaii yeah no that's it yeah bicycle officers patrol santa monica california yeah so that was her other role anyway this is a weird (laughs) little side note on a side note that we've gone down but okay so Marilyn, Marilyn Chambers, Chambers, the biggest they, porn star with no boobies. So they've, uh, <laughs> she's got boobies. Just I mean, she has boobies, but you'd, you'd picture like, uh, this is the seventies. I think it was way more natural. Back no, then. Justin, let him finish. Gary. Oh, yeah, yeah. Tell yeah. us what yeah, you yeah. think about the physicality of porn stars. Go for yeah, it. Let's tell Tell us Gary. I'm just saying what you would maybe imagine. Um, but Justin's right. Also in the set. I mean, you got to think too, because I, I went too far down the rabbit hole on all this too. But the in the 70s, there wasn't porn, really, not porn movies. Uh, there were just short movies, like little short yeah. movies, and they were were disgusting little little hot things you could watch, you know, and yeah. you sit in your little theater and 
sit in your garage and project it on a wall with your like 16 millimeter projector and crack a beer and that with your buddies and that's, or that's, hang out with 20 other that's dirty guys they had, wearing yeah, they, coats stack and parties off in a <laughs> Yeah. and the uh, poor usher that has to come in after you i guess uh, uh with just a hose <laughs> to spray the whole thing down i hope <laughs> uh but i mean this movie behind the green door was before like i mean it was a breakout before like deep throat you know which is one we always reference like it was right. uh i think this was a little before that yeah and, like a year or so like they were both kind of part of what was considered the golden age of porn and then i know you're gonna talk was, about this when, a little bit but yeah. it's so successful I mean, the mitchell brothers they end up using her for like three huge movies for this stuff let's not Uh, get ahead of ourselves here so i'll I'll come back to it but let me just say this let me just say this about the plot of behind the green door uh it's about a girl she's kidnapped and she has she ends up at a sex club in like california or whatever and uh but the big scene the big controversial scene in this is that she has sex with a very large black man who's a boxer uh who's who's wiener was he's well endowed was a star uh, <laughs> but his name star shaped this big black boxer's name get this johnny keys so <laughs> oh, no oh! Shit. <laughs> <laughs> that's, so, uh, <laughs> that's all the time we have on <laughs> that's amazing yeah. uh, so indeed <laughs> somehow this Dumb fucking joke has come all the way back around. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, you're welcome, everybody. <laughs> all right. So check uh, out so, Behind the Green Door, everybody. If hey, you can, because you, know, you can't. I know it's, it's hard to find. I found it. No pun intended. Oh, did you? Say, yeah, I found it. On. It was oh. on a really questionable website that probably gave my computer a virus, but uh, I found it. It is really hard to find the, those old. 70s porn you'd think that they're i guess the rights are really are probably really hard to figure out like who owns the rights to a lot of these but you'd think there'd be a market for that shit uh but apparently i guess not you know <laughs> yeah but well i'm just anyway so just credit where it's due Marilyn chambers and todd davis are ahead of their time <laughs> <laughs> so chambers was uh she was kind of hesitant about taking a role in a porno she had done nudity before but uh, obviously doing hardcore sex on camera is a whole different thing she she i mean she thought essentially that if i do this it's going to ruin my chance at a mainstream career but they explained the story to her and she liked what she called the fantasy elements of the story and she decided to sign on under the condition that she receive a pretty big salary which they initially kind of balked at what she wanted out of this but they they wanted her enough to eventually agree but she wanted a, a fairly hefty salary and 10 percent of the film's grosses which is really what they kind of balked at and but they they did agree to it and they hired her for the film and it is kind of hard to fathom now because porn is literally available with the push of a button anywhere you can watch it on your phone if you want to you know but at the time of its release something like beyond behind the green door was it became a phenomenon it's an hour and i think it's like an hour and a half long film that does sort of have a plot at least in the first 20 minutes or so then it's just yeah. like straight up orgy for the rest I think of the she movie bangs johnny keys for like 45 minutes it's so. it's yeah it's a lot so it's it's literally most of the movie <laughs> it's just uh but this movie along with deep throat as i mentioned before they did they kind of helped usher in the golden age of porn and Marilyn Chambers became one of porn's first crossover celebrities like people who you know were not just hiding in a 
you know, a, a sketchy porno theater, they knew who Marilyn Chambers was. And one of the reasons that the film and Chambers were so popular goes back to her days as a model before she signed on to do this role. One of her earlier modeling gigs was for Procter and Gamble, where she was known as the Ivory Snow Girl. She appeared on these boxes of Ivory Snow soap flakes, um, the, and she's she's basically posing as a mother holding a baby under the tag. The tagline for Ivory Snow was 99 and 44 one hundredths percent pure. Uh, which is very specific and, and a mouthful for a tagline, but that was their tagline. Uh, so she was supposed to be seen as like this pure, you know, young mother. And, you know, that was the image of her on, on the soap. So of course, when the Mitchell brothers found out that Chambers had had a previous career as the Ivory Snow Girl, they quickly capitalized on it by billing her as the 99 and 44 one hundredths impure girl. And I see how they did that. So people <laughs> there's, knew there's plenty of ads and stuff around where you can see her like holding up the uh, detergent boxes over yeah. boobies and stuff. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Procter and Gamble, of course, dropped her after they found out about her other career. Uh, but her image was so well known that it actually boosted the film's ticket sales. Like people were, you know, they'd seen her on grocery store shelves and stuff. You know, uh, the Ivory Snow Girl, and now we have a chance to see her in this in this movie fully naked and you know so people went to see behind the green door because marilyn chambers was in it because they knew who she was and she followed up behind the green door with another film with the mitchell brothers called the resurrection of eve uh, it wasn't the runaway success that green door was but it was still a pretty big hit for them but chambers you know she always wanted to be a mainstream star a, a movie star she wanted to be in legitimate films and she had hoped that her celebrity as the star of Behind the Green Door, because she did have crossover appeal, she had hoped that that would become a stepping stone to other films. But as she had originally feared, it actually hurt her chances at Hollywood stardom because people knew who she was, but they didn't want her in, her, in their movies. You know, they didn't. Robert Altman wasn't going to cast her uh, in in his next film because she was infamous as the the Behind the Green Door girl. She had been up for roles in a few mainstream films before uh, she was supposed to star alongside Rip Torn in a movie called City Blues, which was about a young hooker being defended by a seedy lawyer. Uh, presumably Chambers would play the hooker or Rip Torn the lawyer, but I don't know. Maybe it could have been the other way around. Hey, let's not assume Rip Torn <laughs> is incredibly versatile. Oh, I mean, and, he's dead uh, now, but <laughs> even so more versatile. <laughs> he's a little stiff as an actor. Yeah. Ah, there it is. <laughs> Uh, well, that, that film was supposed to be directed by a legendary uh, director by the name of Nicholas Ray. This is the guy behind Rebel Without a Cause and Johnny Guitar and a slew of some of the most essential film noirs out there. But the project ended up falling apart largely due to Ray's alcoholism and drug abuse. Chambers also claimed that she was brought in by none other than Jack Nicholson and Art Garfunkel to talk about a role in a film called Going South. Uh, but then, according to her, she says that they proceeded to ask her for cocaine and they started to grill her about whether her orgasms in be, uh, behind the green door were real. So she got mad and she stormed out of the meeting. <laughs> so, and, and Hollywood, that's Hollywood meeting 101. Like, yeah, that, leave that stuff at home, fellas. Come <laughs> on. And, and that movie ended up getting made with Jack Nicholson. I'm not sure how Art Garfunkel was involved because he's not in the movie. And I don't know that he does music for it. I don't think he does, but. Maybe he was just there doing coke with Jack Nicholson. I don't know. And there he found out that Marilyn Chambers was coming in for a 
an audition and wanted to hang out for it. I don't know. I'm not really sure. <laughs> um, she was also going to be cast in Paul Schrader's film, Hardcore. Paul Schrader, a writer of Taxi Driver, he's a great director in his own right. Uh, Hardcore is this movie uh, that stars George C. Scott. It's about a father who is searching for his missing daughter, only to find out that she's become part of California's porn underworld. Um, it's a really good movie, by the way, if you haven't seen Hardcore. If you, it's a re- I mean, it's, it's pretty dark, as you can imagine, by that that kind of uh that, that plot but it's it's really good but ironically the casting director took one look at chambers and said that she looked just too wholesome to be believable as a porn queen in their movie it was kind of her thing though you know like i mean again back to the yeah. you know the she, girl she, she had that like, girl next door look exactly yeah so yeah, which that, is weird because if you see her in later stuff like where i would have first run across her on like skinamax or something yeah where she hosted like she she had a she had a show she or she was like like a uh, like an Elvira or Joe Bob type but for, <laughs> for softcore for porn. softcore porn yeah I don't remember what it was called but I definitely saw it back yeah in the day I remember <laughs> and at that point like her boobs had gotten huge like, oh yeah she had they, she had had a little bit of work done by then yes. yeah <laughs> and she was she was older at that time I think oh yeah probably, yeah I mean, she, she, she definitely probably, had the madam vibe you know yeah I'd say she was at least in her mid forties by that point if not a little bit older. So anyway, back to Rabin. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, I saw that. (laughs) As I mentioned, uh, Ivan Reitman had heard that Chambers was trying to break into mainstream films, but that wasn't the only reason that he cast her. I mean, there's probably lots of people trying to break into mainstream films he could have picked, but he really wanted her in the film essentially for marketing reasons because they, they knew that they were making Rabin for the exploitation market. And remember, Behind the Green Door was this big, like, mainstream success, so people knew who she was. So Reitman's reasoning was, why does a distributor from Spain, for instance, why do they want to see Rabbit? Why would they care enough to see Rabbit and, and import it into their country? Well, he'll go see it if Marilyn Chambers is in it, because they know who Marilyn Chambers is. And they knew that that was bankable, that they could promote this as a film starring Marilyn Chambers and sell tickets. So the filming of Rabid, once they got on, uh, you know, they've got Marilyn Chambers, they've got their cast intact. The filming of Rabid was, it was less eventful than Shivers had been. Uh, They no longer needed to sleep in the locations where they were filming. Uh, The crew of Rabid had a budget about three times that of Shivers, although it's about $530,000. So it still falls firmly into like the low budget category, but they had a lot more resources than they did before. I did want to mention really quick that like they had, you know, the the budget on this movie is like, you know, what, what would we say, like 500,000 or something, 530,000. Yeah. Um, so you can't afford a real star. So Marilyn Chambers, I don't know if this is the first example of stunt casting, but this is what this is now. And yeah. uh, she came along with like baggage. Apparently there was a guy that was like her husband on the set. Uh, Chuck mm-hmm. Trainer is his name. Oh, yeah. He was her manager and husband, I believe. Yeah. And good for that guy. I mean, he, uh, I mean, I say good for that guy. I don't know how that guy was, but uh, he was, he also uh, apparently was married to like Linda Loveless and stuff like that too. Yeah. So so he, he got around and like managed these people. Everybody hated him on set. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, Linda Loveless wrote uh, about him in her, her autobiography and said that he was pretty abusive. And that he had essentially coerced her into starring in Deep Throat. So, uh, granted, I mean, you know, Linda Lovelace showed a lot of regret later in her life uh, about her porn career because she became a Christian. So that could have 
stemmed from that. I mean, obviously, I'm not saying that she wasn't telling the truth about him, but she was kind of ashamed of her previous life as a porn star. Uh, but Chuck Trainer, by all accounts, was probably not the best dude. I mean, he he was a porn producer in the 70s. I mean, he's not going to be the most stand-up guy. <laughs> well, and, and and even for uh, for Marilyn Chambers, I mean, she you know she she had hoped this would turn into something. She took you know they couldn't afford a star, but they could afford her. She wasn't charging. You know, she she was looking for the breakout role, like you're mentioning. And uh, I think after like she hoped Rabbit would help this and and, you know, to round her out. It really didn't. It, it, it she made like 15 more movies after this that were not porn movies, but all like shitty movies. And yeah, and I'm not nobody... really I'm not really sure why, though, because she's pretty good in this. And I, I could see her having a mainstream career. So I'm not sure if it was just bad management or the Joe Bob Briggs stuff I was looking at said that, uh, you know, a lot of times too, like Chuck, he, he had heard that Chuck had screwed that up for like, people just didn't like doing business with him. So that also, uh, kind of screwed her around. The, the thing I wanted to cover too, is, is we're going into this, this filming part, you, you might be wondering like, because of all the heat they got for shivers, like, why is everybody cool with Marilyn Chambers coming into right. <laughs> uh, to this movie? But yeah. it's it goes back to Cinepix is known for another thing, and that's softcore porn. And Canada has a whole industry of this yeah. stuff that is called maple, maple syrup porn. Right? Maple syrup porn. <laughs> yeah. Listen, and, uh, listen, don't knock until you try it. You know, next time you're <laughs> with your lady, grab a bottle of our finest and you know, just give it a little pour on her. She might you like might- it. You might think it's like meta that there's like a porn theater sequence in this, but that was already in the script before Marilyn Chambers was even a part of this. Yeah, uh, that whole thing was happening, and uh, and and the fil- there's a film on when she walks out of that theater. It's advertising a film called Eve, and one of the movies that she made with uh, the Mitchell brothers, one another uh, one of the films that she was most famous for, is called The Resurrection of Eve. So I wonder if that was done on purpose or if that was just a major coincidence that could be but I, I figured it was worth mentioning maple syrup porn it was a it was not not about like you know sticky stuff being dumped all over women's boobies although <laughs> you know it could it could also be i'm I sure mean, that if, happened every now and then yeah if you uh <laughs> i mean if you google maple syrup porn you'll definitely you know it'll change the way you view breakfast but <laughs> the um it, what's funny about them is they were all soft core because there were like rules about them. I, sorry, I went down this rabbit hole too, but there, there were rules about them. Uh, Quebec was so Catholic that uh, the, they worked really well because of everybody being so uptight, but uh, they, they had to have like a moral at the end of the story, basically like they had to come back around to like uh, Valerie was one of Cinepix's first big ones. And uh, it's, it's about a girl who becomes a stripper and a prostitute, but eventually by the end, she meets this artist they fall in love and she settles down and becomes a Catholic housewife. And so it's okay. If at the end of this, like you could be, <laughs> As crazy as you want to be up front, but she's got, you got to round this off at the end (laughs) uh, with a nice, wholesome story. Uh, But yeah, the top distributor of maple syrup porn is Cinepix. Uh, They had right before all of this Cronenberg stuff, I think they had one called Du Femme and R. Uh, I think it was their most popular. There's about two uh, housewives who get bored. And so they just start 
banging everybody who comes to their door uh, <laughs> until the local pet shop owner shows up and they have a threesome and he dies. But then they have to go on trial for murder, but the judge is okay with them and lets them off and they go back to normal life. So he lets them off and they get him off. Is that I don't I don't on? know if they actually adopt. man. I wish people still made porn where it had like a a full fucking plot. <laughs> like, <laughs> right, like, like, uh, like that's great. But I, that I, movie I, made like four million dollars at the box office. That's ca- Canadian money. So yeah. that's and that's pretty good for you know, and it's in French. All these movies are made in French. Like sometimes they get dubbed in English, but they're not. Uh, you know, th- this is not like a big market. It's not like some huge thing. So to make that much money, anyway, you know, they've got a tradition of these things. So I don't know. It's, yeah, uh, it, I, it was a whole thing. When I read when Cronenberg first came in, he was looking to he was looking to direct one of them. He had he had tried to do one of uh, Stomping Tom Collins or something, which was like a cowboy movie. He had tried to get in on and then he was going to direct one of the pornos the maple syrup porns and it was called laughing and loving which doesn't sound like anything a pornographic or that david cronenberg would direct but (laughs) it uh yeah just just wanted to get all of that out there that we uh, we appreciate your commitment yeah and and in the porn theater by the way the uh the two movies that are on the double feature there were uh uh, party swappers and models for pleasure. Just were those real? Yeah, uh, those are real movies. It's a party swappers is a Swedish movie. Uh, it's it, in Sweden. It's called The Intruders. Uh, but models for pleasure is I, I don't know. I couldn't find too much about that. <laughs> <laughs> so this is I've done a... the most research on the porno re- adjacent. Yeah, story. Well, you know, <laughs> it's, it's an it's an, it really is an interesting part of canadian film history though i mean it, we're, we're not just mentioning this stuff as sort of like oh it's it's funny or whatever because it is genuinely part of this story uh not only because of Marilyn chambers but because of cinepix and because of where the canadian film industry was at this time it's it's really a kind of a there's kind of a wild history of canadian cinema that sort of parallels hollywood but it's definitely it definitely goes down its own path and uh it's, it's an interesting story so they go to shoot Rabbit, and they do have a lot more money this time around, 530 grand, like we said. Uh, and they needed it because this was a much more ambitious film than Shiver. Shivers is pretty much all set within this one apartment building. I mean, they, they shot everything in one location. But in this one, there's a lot of locations. And there, are, as the film goes on and the virus spreads, the scope of the film gets much broader. And you bring in like the military, uh, and you've got military vehicles, you've got ambulances you, you all kinds of stuff i mean it, it becomes a fairly big story by the end so there and so 530 grand for the story they were trying to tell was still a very small amount of money mm. and the uh this make makeup effects i as we we kind of glanced over this before but they were a lot less complex than those in shivers because this time you know we mentioned joe blasco was still doing the effects but they did he wasn't ever on set for the application of those effects. He just created them. He, these little appliances that they would attach the back at his shop in Los Angeles. And then he'd send them to Montreal where rabbit was being filmed. So somebody else presumably would be on set actually applying these. 
So, but yeah, so I don't have a lot of stories about the making of this because the making of it was fairly uneventful. I mean, it wasn't a, there wasn't, there just weren't a whole lot of antidotes on the set of this, you know? Kermode tells a story about that he and Reitman were in a trailer like two weeks before they start shooting and Cronenberg comes in and tells them, uh, and I think this is related. So I'm putting these two things together and I'm not a hundred percent sure, but uh, that Callum uh, Vanderstadt guy also tells a story that Cronenberg was suffering a crisis of conscience during the time of preparation for this movie that yeah. um, he thought people, when they saw the, woman sucking blood with the phallic arm spike that they were just going to laugh and uh, not take it seriously. And he thought this was kind of dumb. And he, and he, it took John Dunning and Ivan Reitman to convince them to proceed. I think this story is related. Kermode tells a story that they were all in the trailer and, and Cronenberg comes in and says, I don't want to do this movie anymore. Um, I had a dream last night and I've been up all night and I wrote something else. And uh, I've been thinking about it. I don't want to do this instead. And the story he tells them about, Carmody says that we were all like, what? Were you fucking nuts? And he says, no, no, listen, I had a story about two twin gynecologists. Yeah. And, uh, and then we just stopped. We we're like, no, we are doing rabid. Yeah. Uh, but, and they won. But uh, yeah, that's that, uh, that, Ed Ringers. That's Ed Ringer. So he, he ended up making it <laughs> later on. And it's a great film. And we're not going to cover it on the series. That'll be on our next David Cronenberg <laughs> series. And uh, we talk about Ned, Ned Ringers. It'll actually be the very, probably, once we just do another Cronenberg series down the line, I think it'll be the first episode of that series. But, but everybody says, by the way, that this is the last time they ever saw like Cronenberg have like a moment's doubt about yeah, what he was about doing. What he was doing. Nice. Yeah. Well, here, here is another fun little note about the making of this so at the end of the movie the, that final person that rose infects you know where she's waiting in her apartment it's a very like intense scene where she's on the on the phone with heart you know and she's basically trying to kind of prove that she's not patient zero you know mm. or or it's a moment of self-sacrifice it could be read both ways you know so she's in this apartment she she infects the guy and of course, as we know, he ends up waking up and killing her at the end of the movie. But the guy that that she infects is played by an actor named Alan Moyle. Uh, you might not know that name, but Moyle, he, he acted in a couple of movies after this, but he actually ended up becoming a director in Hollywood. And he directed Pump Up the Volume, you know, the, the uh, oh, Christian yeah. Slater movie. Yeah. And he directed one of my favorite movies from the 90s, Empire Records. Oh, nice. okay. Nice. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah isn't, that, isn't that wild? What a weird yeah. connection. <laughs> so I guess since that, that might be a good segue, since we're talking about a cast member here, uh, we haven't yet asked Todd who he's trekking with this week. So did you find anything <laughs> on this one, Todd? Was Marilyn Chambers ever in an episode of uh, Star Trek that I don't remember? Don't think I didn't look. She would have, I think she would have made a great, uh, I think she would have made a great, um orion or possibly a vulcan or you know what she could have uh you know gotten her rage up and been one of those uh andorians but sadly no marilyn chambers is not part of the star trek <laughs> franchise um missed opportunity there but at least the the uh canic canon of star trek like i'm sure she's <laughs> that's right possibly in some sort of star trek adjacent no, Look, it, it's behind the green door could be one of those whooshing doors that <laughs> i hope i hope dear, that, that exists dear starfleet i never thought i'd send a subspace transmission like this but 
Uh, but yes, besides Mr. David Cronenberg himself, Mr. Peter McNeil has a small role as loader. And I don't know if that's, you know, dropping loads, making loads, throwing loads, whatever it is. But he is in this as what loader. Are you and referring to? Who am I referring to or what am Load, I referring to? I don't get the load thing. Loads? You, um, yeah, explain well, loads we'll, to me. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it off, uh, off okay. hearing. It's, you know, <laughs> this episode's already running long. Um, so we, uh, yeah, he was also in an episode of Star Trek Discovery uh, back in 2017. It was season one, episode seven, Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad as Baron Grimes. Uh, but Nobody else, sadly. Nobody else in the cast. That's it. Uh, just one guy. We don't even know who he is in this. Yep. Movie. We just won. <laughs> we don't know who he is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's going to happen on these, especially these like smaller exploitation movies. You know, right. a lot of these folks and don't have a long history in Hollywood. Yeah. And that's something I'm noticing as I'm going through. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of Canadian actors, a lot mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, this was their only film that they ever were in all together. So, yeah, these, you know, honestly, these Star Trek connections are rare. They are yeah. few and far between. But yeah, I mean, well, William, Shat- William Shatner is a Canadian actor. That's true. <laughs> he should have been in this. <laughs> he should uh, have. <laughs> you had, I mean, there were there were people with rage, like Terrence G. Ross, who plays the farmer who goes from like super drunk to I'm going to rape you. Yeah, zombie. To, like he's to getting a his lot eye. of rage. To yeah. Give me some barbecue. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and that's everybody in Star Trek. All right. So remember that magazine, Cinema Canada, that we talked about last week. That was one that was founded by Canadian cinematographers. They ended up yeah. being one of the few publications to kind of come to the defense of Shivers, going so far as to call it a masterpiece of modern horror. Mm. Well. They had felt the need to defend it because of the conservative writers kind of getting their panties in a bunch over the film's uh, deplorable content. For Rabid, though, they wanted to go ahead and get ahead of the eight ball. And they put out one of the first reviews of the film before any like unneeded controversy could arise, uh, which this goes a long way into helping David Cronenberg in his career. So this was a pretty cool thing of them to do. They, They kind of ended up setting the tone for the film's reception. So before the film's release, in April of 1977, they put out an article that celebrated shivers, uh, lambasting critics who had denounced it. And this is what this is from that article. They said, Cronenberg, this is talking about shivers, by the way, not rabid, but they, this is kind of leading up to rabid's release. They wanted to go ahead and say, hey, this guy makes great movies and people shit on this other movie when it came out. And we're telling you why they should not have. Uh, so they say Cronenberg's film has suffered the same critical disdain that was accorded Psycho, Night of the Living Dead, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Perhaps serious art in the horror genre must be expected to be reviled before it is understood. Shivers, by whatever name, will join those classics. If Cronenberg continues to grow, this film will rank with Psycho as a personal statement. At the very least, it will rank with those other two films as a powerful expression of an anxiety of its day so deep it hurts. I think they're overstating how good Shivers is uh, to an extent because comparing it to Psycho is like there's some big shoes to fill but I appreciate (laughs) I appreciate what they're trying to do there though you know Uh, but they did put out one of the first write-ups for Rabbit they gave it a glowing review which was not always the case but they wanted to set the tone as to uh, as to how you know people walked into this film the mindset that they walked into this film but I'm sure not everyone feels that way even to this day i'm sure uh, there are some folks out there who uh who have some issues with this film gary 
I don't know why you would think that. I mean, it's not like this is the internet uh, that we're dealing with <laughs> when we look at these films and it's not like people stay up till three or four o'clock in the morning, going on letterbox and writing a uh, review when they should be taking a nap. Uh, James Day writes here, I consider myself a big horror fan. What with a video collection of about 110 plus, but this is a bad egg of which I regret owning. I hate this film to be perfectly blunt. The only Cronenberg movie that's half decent is The Fly. I found this film to be too slow and character development was totally scarce. The FX are not. Is that the sound that like, uh, uh, Pinky makes Narf. That's Narf. <laughs> Narf. <laughs> Narf. <laughs> uh, and it all seems like an excuse for ex porn star Marilyn Chambers to get her kit off every few minutes. What's with the virus slash mutant thing coming out of the armpit? Wouldn't it have been more creative to have it coming out of other more visible parts like the mouth or something? This could have been a good film, but to me, it's one of the worst movies ever made avoid these these reviewers love to call something the worst thing ever yeah they do (laughs) uh as a matter of fact justin the next review is by just josh and the title of the review is worst movie i've ever seen (laughs) (laughs) first off i was waiting two weeks to see the movie expecting something good but this movie was just played terrible the the graphics were stupid even for the time and the story was literally nothing. You don't even know how she became what she is and why that stupid needle comes out of her armpit every time somebody gets near her. I swear, so many deaths were for the same cause because some pervert wants to touch her you-know-what. Uh, you see people pulled out of the sheets on her all the time. So much nudity, it ruined it. This movie is only for people who literally have no taste and like seeing perverts and the same naked woman running around half the movie. That's why I gave this movie one star. I swear, don't waste your time on this crappy film. All caps there. I mean, she's really not naked that often Mm -hmm. in this movie. Yeah, she's really not. And also the graphics were not very good. What graphics are you guys talking about? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Do y'all think this is CG? He played the Xbox version. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, I, I even remember more stuff with Carmody. He talked about that the, the hardest, like Marilyn was wonderful and, you know, Cronenberg loved her dedication. And, uh, the only thing was, is that she kept constantly thinking she was supposed to take her clothes off on things. And we're like, no, you, <laughs> like, no, you don't have to do that. Yeah. <laughs> they finally worked in a scene where you know, she can take her shirt off, but <laughs> like, this is not that kind of movie. Uh, let's see here. This, this person had a problem with the, uh, cover art apparently, cause uh, this is hella says oh man this cover that girl in the freezer has so little to do with this film it was a two second shot of her i was disappointed about that i can't explain why but here you go early horror porn sexually active armpit which has a vagina ish hole plus penis coming out of it claw extension from the penis tip which needs to feed on blood cronenberg this dude has issues Maybe that, that cover art is a little i've always thought that was really weird to choose as like the poster because first of all you cast marilyn chambers for her recognizability mm. and then 
then they're she's not even used in the in the marketing material. That is uh, it's, weird. it's one it's a girl who's got like three scenes in the movie and one of like the less memorable death scenes. Uh, so it's it's really it's always been really odd to me. That's a good point. Uh, Emily says, if you're going to show me an armpit pussy, then at least give me more damn blood. Ah, another movie I had high hopes for because I'd heard and read so much about it, but ultimately it was let down. God damn. I was bored as fuck. I, it started pretty good, but along the way, the story got blood. The kills were just lame, especially as a zombie-like film. I did appreciate that that one operation room scene that was crazy but i don't know maybe another rewatch will change my mind i really wanted to like this so unlike some of the other prudes that are uh, reviewing this this person didn't think it was violent enough emily like. wanted more <laughs> <laughs> emily expected more out of you david cronenberg uh teriyaki kush <laughs> <laughs> says, uh, the contagious armpit monster woman from Toronto turns people into zombies. What the fuck? Ride your motorcycles carefully or you can create the next contagious armpit monster woman from Toronto. This is not in Toronto. This is in uh, Montreal. Montreal. Good point. <laughs> All right, Cushy. Completely different part of the country. Yeah. In connection to our last series, this review comes from someone named Matrix Cat. Uh, Extremely Chad movie from Cronenberg to write a movie that starts with woman gets into motorbike accident across the road from plastic surgery clinic and requires life-saving titty skin transplant surgery to survive. <laughs> but after that, it feels like they just filmed enough scenes of people biting each other to get 90 minutes. They called it a day. Great performance by Marilyn Chambers, though, and I love seeing Joe Silver again. The pickle-eating guy with the hilariously deep voice and enormous nose from Shivers is in this. <laughs> they call him the pickle eating guy the pickle eating guy I mean, he is, I mean that's not an inaccurate way of describing his character in shivers yeah <laughs> he does have a large nose yes and a very deep voice mm -hmm. yeah so there you go those are those are the people that i chose that needed a nap this time all right well well then how about you guys what did you guys think of it had you seen I, it before i'm not no this was this was first viewing for me okay and todd you liked shivers I was, I was, I was not expecting you to like shivers. So you did enjoy that one. Did you enjoy rabbit? Uh, honestly, no, not really. I kind of, you know, Emily's, uh, you know, to go back to what, uh, Gary was just reading Emily's, uh, review was actually kind of, kind of, you wanted more blood. Well, let me, let me at least say, I thought the close-up shots of the things like moving around in her armpit and stuff like that. I was like, okay, that's, it looks good. It's, yeah. you know, that's kind of cool. It's it is a cool. little confusing as to how that all kind of came to be from them, like removing a piece of her thigh. I, I, I was it's like, experimental, okay, is... it's experimental surgery. That's all yeah. you need to know. And, um, I mean, and Marilyn Chambers is fine. I mean, I don't really have anything to compare her her performance with from my own from my own viewing, but like, I don't know. It just didn't. It just kind of fell flat for me. I yeah. it was, I don't know. I I mean, I really was trying to like, you know, look at performances and like the prosthetics and everything, but it just kind of, yeah. I, I don't know. This one didn't really hit for me. Suck Johnny Key's dick, Todd. <laughs> you, no i like this movie i actually like this movie better than shivers honestly it feels like a oh. more uh well-rounded version of shivers i'd seen it once before and like some of that joe bob stuff i mentioned this is why 
uh, it's not on Shutter anymore, but it was part of the mar- the one of the first marathons that yeah. Joe Bob did when he came back. I think that was the first time I'd ever seen it. Nice. Um, but I liked it better this time around. Um, like even more than that time, I I, I get I, I would get why people wouldn't like it because it is uh, very. I don't know. Stuff's not fleshed out. Uh, I watched the remake right before we recorded this, and uh, and we can talk about that later. But the the um, I, I get that the characters don't really seem fleshed out. It just kind of jumps right into this thing. Also, we talked a lot about. I could get into like my issues with Cronenberg so far, but one of them is, or the, actually the main one is that I, we last movie I was focused on saying like, Oh, people think he's a woman hater. I think he loves his women. And I think we talked about John Dunning was also a big part of having like female, like leads, like important female leads. And that's still very clear here. What he sucks at is at least at this point, And I'm saying this because I think he fixes it uh, later, but his men just suck. Like they're just <laughs> idiots. I think, yeah, I mean, but I don't. I don't that, boring. That might be intentional, though. You know. Yeah, it could be. It could be. I, I think. I, like I said, I think he's gonna. He, at some point, he he turns that around because uh, we're gonna get Goldblum eventually, of all right, and, and James Woods and stuff like that. So like, he's obviously gonna care about it a little bit more. But uh, yeah, at least at this point, that uh that dude uh i forgot his name already but for uh well hart is the character's name yeah but he's just kind of like oh wow that uh that he's guy. just kind of a doofus that's you know he's just kind <laughs> of a, a doofus of a character but i don't know that that's i, I think that might be intentional i think you might be right because it maybe maybe he just doesn't believe in like heroic dudes coming yeah. to save the day and stuff like that like he maybe that you're right maybe maybe that's part of it uh, but but otherwise, yeah, I like the movie and uh, I love the effects. I love the effects of uh, the the phallic thing. And yeah, uh, it's, it looks cool, especially for what they're working with here. I mean, th- this really does uh, feel like kind of a continuation of what Cronenberg started in Shivers. You know, the themes are very similar. Uh, once again, it's about a contagious virus. You know, it's a it's almost uh, he, he calls it a companion piece to Shivers. You know, because they they are very similar, have very similar beats. But this time, I think the filmmaking is more refined. Uh, it looks better. It sounds better. Uh, the camera movements are smoother. You know, it's it's a much more professional looking production than Shivers, I think. Uh, and the the crisis that unfurls in the film gets goes much bigger than the one in Shivers. Whereas Shivers ended with the infected leaving their apartment and going out into the world, or going out into Montreal at least. Uh, only kind of hinting at the possible worldwide horror that might be to come. Uh, Rabbit's final act kind of shows us exactly how that type of crisis would play out. Uh, you know, like it, it shows you what happens after the end of Shivers, which I think is pretty cool because they had more resources to do that. Right. Well, it was it, something that did stick out to me was there were a lot of different sound bites, uh, different, you know, a lot, mostly things on the news that. Yeah. I was like, you know, honestly, if you clip this out of the film, this could be about stuff happening today. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you show, so that was people little... showing their, their vaccination cards and stuff. Yeah. 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 It's, it's I was crazy. Like, that's kind of eerie, but. And well, yeah. he also, that, that's part of how he's evolved as well at telling at the way that he tells a story, because in Shivers, a lot of the information we got about the parasite came from simple like exposition conversations you know you've got joe silver's character kind of explaining things uh kind of a boring way to 
convey information just by having someone literally talk, talk about it. Right. Whereas in rabid, you get it through like phone calls, news reports, things like that. You kind of get an idea of everything that's going on in a less direct way. But I think that makes for better storytelling because it feels more natural, less, a less forced way of conveying the information, uh, which I think, again, I think that's just Cronenberg learning his craft even more. Well, a big part of this, too, to, to consider also is the way that you view this movie. I mean, uh, a lot of people are going to look at this movie like a zombie movie, which they're not zombies. Uh, I don't even think it's rabies, really. And uh, Yeah, they describe it as similar to rabies, I think, or, or they think it's rabies at first, but it's really not. It's just something with similar symptoms, I guess. I think Cronenberg's um, got a strong but- grasp on reality and uh so what i was going to say here is that i mean part of this movie is also inspired in 1970 there was a thing called the october crisis yeah uh the uh font font de libération du quebec uh your french is amazing thank you so much uh it's the the quebec uh liberation front is what that is and they Mm -hmm. they we will call them the uh, flq for the french version but the uh they uh basically they wanted independence for uh quebec at the time and they were uh terrorist bombers kind of like the ira uh they had bombs in mailboxes and stuff yeah they kidnapped uh, a cabinet minister and a british diplomat in canada uh ended up killing the cabinet minister uh the uh prime minister of canada at the time pierre trudeau uh, invoked martial law. I think he, it was called like the War Measures Act, and yeah. uh, basically just let troops pour into the city and uh, just start rounding up people, especially anybody that seemed like a suspect. And uh, basically, I think a few hundred of these people got away to Cuba or something, but they found the diplomat and got the people and stuff like that. But it was like a bloody thing, and the FLQ was like a scary thing for canadians at the time like they bombed the stock exchange too and uh so canadians are watching this movie and thinking like streets with like troops walking up and down a more scary right. site and they've just been a part of this or this is right. really close to them uh while we're watching it thinking like oh this is a zombie movie but you know for for them it was more about the the outcome you know like this bigger outcome of what happens when the plague takes over and then what the government does about it and that sort of thing right yeah i mean it's very much inspired by that because that you know the october crisis is considered like one of the we one of the darker moments in in canadian history and it was a very recent piece of history when audiences were watching this movie so it it really kind of hit hit home for a lot of people Oh, yeah. And two of the biggest names in the FLQ uh, were the Rose Brothers. So, oh, really? Rose. Yeah. So, interesting. Rose there. Yeah. And, and you've also got, you know, you've got some of the sim- some similar themes that you, you saw in Shivers and kind of stuff that you'll see throughout his films. But you've, you've got a deadly virus that is the result of medical experimentation. Uh, performed by a kind of mad scientist, <laughs> you know, a keloid, at least seems to kind of have good, have good intentions. Like he's not being nefarious, like the guy in shivers was, but, right, you know, right. it, but once again, there's also the sexual element to its transmission uh, because of the placement of her, her stinger, I guess you'd call it uh, Rose kind of has to embrace her victims. She kind of rubs their head, like it, like she's hugging them, like she's comforting them, but she's really feeding on them. You know, that's very similar to how 
in Shivers, the virus was sort of treated as a sexually transmitted disease. Uh, and of course, there's also the fact that the stinger itself does look both phallic and vaginal at the same time. Like they, they managed to make it look like both. So yeah, uh, I one- think I, I saw Joe Bob said uh, this thing's got like a an anus, a penis, and a vagina. It's everything a Thailand <laughs> pimp has been familiarized with. <laughs> Uh, but w- one of the big differences, I think, here, and this might go back to some of Todd's criticisms on it, but I think that Cronenberg is less concerned with the characters here than he is with how society responds to the crisis. And this could also call back to his feelings on the October crisis. You know, uh, the he's more he's more interested in the aftermath of society breaking down and the failure to respond to that properly and what that looks like at the end by the end of the film how they've let it kind of go out of control you know how they've let this this major outbreak essentially run rampant which you know has no i'm sure us living in 2022 can't relate to that at all yeah (laughs) well i mean these people like going into the aids crisis and and that sort of thing the thing with Cronenberg is he's also he's very atheist. And uh, oh, yeah. so I also appreciate that, like all of these movies, um, and I, I think this continues, we'll see, but uh, that he's not messing with really anything like supernatural at this point. He's just dealing with uh, the science of it. He's trying yeah. to uh, it's also extra scary because Canada just looks bleak anyway, I think. Yeah, but it does. <laughs> It's just cold and bleak, but perpetual, uh, yeah. perpetual winter. Yeah, but I don't know that he ever really veers into the supernatural. I think even stuff like the dead zone, you know, I, I think that it all kind of is scientifically based. I don't think, yeah, he ever and, but also he's not really dealing with like evil or any of that stuff. He doesn't seem like interested in, in messing with any of that stuff. He's he's dealing with like humans and and the science and trying to move along science and then the those issues along the way, I guess. I mean, it, cause even in this one, so this movie got ripped a little bit too. Like uh, I, I think some people like compared it to the crazies and uh, like, so Romero and stuff like that, but even more so than Romero, like Cronenberg's not, uh, he's, he's dealing with like, I mean, plastic surgery at the time. Wasn't something normal people just got on, on the reg, like plastic yeah. surgery was like, you're super rich. Uh, or, you know, you've been damaged terribly or something in some right. way. The thing they do, the operation is, he calls it uh, morphogenetically neutral skin that he's put out. But Cronenberg is predicting stem cells is what's yeah. happening in yeah. this in this movie. And yeah. uh, so he's, he's doing the Star Trek thing of like just introducing science that's like he probably knew something about, but nobody really, you know, it wasn't there yet. Right, right, right. So I guess that's a good segue then into uh, our further viewing segment of the show. If you guys were to, uh, if you guys were to pair this as a double feature with another film, uh, let's say not Shivers, because that's an obvious double feature. Right. uh, What would you pair along with this? Uh, To be honest, I mean, looking at, uh, so, you know, knowing that this kind of started off uh, with some mosquito elements since that was the original title and you're gonna say the, fucking jurassic park 
I, no, 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 <laughs> no. But since there was sort of like an animal element mixed with the human, I'm not going to go fly either. But, uh, you know, you had uh, uh, non-human mixed with a human to create this other thing that makes sort of a classic movie trope, the zombie thing. Um, I'm actually going to go with uh, dog soldiers. I really like that. And I feel like this this is kind of like the calm before dog soldiers, the storm. And, you know, mixing those to get, uh, you know, a werewolf, uh, you know, pretty intense werewolf uh, features, I think would make a, I think would make a good double header. The detours that Todd's mind takes to get to his it. double features fascinates <laughs> me. It, it really is. We don't I mean, know there's the obvious ones you should be going with. Like, I was going to say, like, Blackula. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um no, I'm actually going to recommend you watch the remake of this by the Saska sisters. Uh, yeah, I watched it this morning, 2019. Oh, so did pretty I. Pretty good. It's yeah, pretty good. I thought it was good. I was <laughs> yeah. like, this, this movie's pretty. pretty it's pretty good. good. It's, it's definitely. I didn't, realize, I didn't realize there was a remake. Yeah, there was a remake in 2019 by Jen and Sylvia Saska, otherwise known as the Saska sisters, who kind of got known for uh, a movie called Dead Hooker in a Trunk, I believe is what it's called, and American Mary. Uh, they also did See No Evil 2 starring Kane. They did a movie uh, starring uh, The Big Show that I can't remember the name of. And of course, Rabbit has a, a sort of extended cameo by CM Punk. So they're really into wrestlers in their movies. Nice. Uh, yeah. CM Punk, Punk plays one of, the, um, one of the victims of Rose in it. And Rose is played by uh, the girl who plays uh, Supergirl on Smallville. I can't remember her name. but Oh, yeah. Um... Yeah, yeah, no, I know who you mean. Yeah, I'm but, drawing a blank on her name. Though. I thought it was pretty good. I was not expecting to like it as much as I did. And it definitely like um, goes in some very different directions. Uh, mm-hmm. For one, Rose in, this, in the remake is more complicit in like she chooses to have surgery, whereas Rose in in Cronenberg's version, uh, it happens while she's asleep. So, which, not, which Not before her uh, face gets insanely fucked up (laughs) yeah oh jeez yeah she gets pretty fucked up in her uh yeah rose Rose gets fucked up in this one and um the effects are i I love them but yeah pretty good the last 10 minutes are insane yeah i was gonna say you (laughs) can tell the weird directions saska sisters they're probably somebody will do a series on someday but the um like if you've seen american mary which i'm actually a big fan of too not just because Catherine isabel is the lead in that and i love yeah. her so much but the uh they clearly have different interests than cronenberg i mean not that they shy away from the interests in this movie like they pay respects to the science part of it but the saska sisters have like there's a there's a feminine and the perception of feminine femininity in a lot of their stuff, it seems yeah. like. So like American Mary is also a lot about plastic surgery and like body modification and that sort of thing. That's how I feel like this movie goes to it. deals a lot with the fashion industry and like that yeah. sort of kind of a similar uh, type of thing with with this version of Rabid. But but the armpit monster does make its appearance uh, mm-hmm. later on in the movie and it looks wild. It looks definitely more like a penis than yeah. even Cronenberg's version. <laughs> and uh and yeah, the finale of the movie is just a whole bunch of what the fuck. 
really it's definitely worth checking out. I've been wanting to see it for a long time and I just never got around to it. So I kind of used this as an opportunity to finally watch it. Uh, I would also say a, another good one for a double feature would be the crazies, which you mentioned, because they, they do ah. share similar like virus makes people go nuts kind of thing. But it's not exactly a zombie movie, which also leads me to my other recommendation, which is 28 Days Later. Uh, nice. Yeah. The, the, the way that the uh, infected behave in this are very similar to like the rage virus that from 28 Days Later. I have mm-hmm. to think that Danny Boyle uh, was somewhat inspired by Rabbit when he made that movie. Yeah, that feels right. I really thought you were going to go with I Am Legend, but no, no, nope, not a fan of that one. But yeah, <laughs> there are vampire. I mean, there is a vampire element to to Rabbit as well. I mean, Rose is essentially a vampire that creates zombies, even though they're not actually zombies. They behave like we expect movie zombies to behave, you know, for right, sure. Right. And 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 Rabbit, uh, the remake definitely leans way more into that than for sure, absolutely. Yeah. Hey, uh, so the fun little thing that uh, I joked with boys before we started rolling that I actually did uh, some extra research, which I don't normally end up doing. But um, if you're if you want to kind of go down a side rabbit trail with uh, Cronenberg, go watch Rick and Morty season one, episode six, Rick potion number nine, because they end up turning the entire population of Earth into cronenbergs and they yep. are very cronenberg-esque <laughs> monsters oh yeah and i had good episode for- yeah i completely forgotten about that and i was watching it yesterday and i was just like i have to mention this on the show tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> so your research your research was watching rick and morty yep yep that's it <laughs> that, makes that is a good episode though so <laughs> it does fit in so that's why right, so- I, I i will say this so so the things you look for in cronenberg so far right are uh, dumb fucking male leads uh, and you look for uh, the science more so I think the science is uh, this is a, a revelation to me I'm sorry because I just mostly thought of body horror and I guess we're getting there more and more eventually he's going to blow up somebody's head but for now it really feels like his his he's like science gone wrong that's like yeah. his his big deal but but even in his stuff where the body horror is much more um, showy, I guess you'd say, uh, they are oftentimes the result of some sort of science or, you know, whether it be an experiment or just natural evolution or whatever. We're going to see that a lot on our next episode. Uh, next episode definitely gets way more into like the horrific body horror, at least in part of it. So at this time, you know, Cronenberg and Cinepix, they uh, they go to release this movie. They set up a distribution deal in the U.S. with Roger Corman's New World Pictures uh, to, to distribute it here. And the film went on to gross over $7 million, uh, which it doesn't sound like a lot, but for a movie that only cost half a million, that's a pretty good return on investment. And it actually made Cronenberg Canada's most bankable director at this time. They knew that this was a guy who could, his movies are making money. So his star is rising. But he was also never really content to be just a horror movie director. Remember, we talked about this in Shivers. When he sits down to write his scripts, he doesn't specifically aim to write them within the confines of a particular genre. He just kind of goes where a story takes him, which in most cases is to some pretty dark, fucked up places. But even at this early stage in his career, he did, he did begin to show some diversity by following up Rabbit with a movie called Fast Company, which is this kind of, it's a racing drama. It's about, it's about, you know, drag racing, essentially. So it kind of, this fascination with motorcycles and race cars and things like that, uh, he actually made a movie about it. And it does not feel 
like a Cronenberg movie at all, except for one scene where a guy pours motor oil on a girl's naked boobies. Uh, but other than that, it doesn't feel, feel like a Cronenberg movie. And we're not going to devote a whole episode to Fast Company because we're try- kind of trying to focus on the body horror films that Cronenberg was making at this time. And Fast Company is very much an outlier in his filmography. He even says so. Uh, but for a Cronenberg completist, I do think it's worth watching to kind of see his growth as a filmmaker because it's definitely his most commercial feeling film at this point. Uh, and it also marked the first time that Cronenberg made a film that didn't originate from an original idea of his own. He's working from somebody else's script that he rewrote. Furthermore, it put him in contact with cinematographer Mark Irwin, art director Carol Spire, sound editor Brian Day, and film editor Ronald Sanders all of whom became regulars among the crew of his later films. He would work with all of them for at least a decade, some of them for multiple decades after Fast Company. So there are some important things happening behind the scenes on that film. And we'll maybe talk a little bit about that more on our next episode. Uh, But it, it also marked the first time that he worked with an actor by the name of Nicholas Campbell, who has kind of the one of the co-lead roles of the film. And he would later appear in The Brood, The Dead Zone, and Naked Lunch. So he's making some connections on Fast Company, even if it does feel, it almost feels like a paycheck movie. I'll get into some reasons as to why he filmed it in our next episode. But uh, we're going to skip ahead to the film that he made directly after that. It's a film that is often considered Cronenberg's first, like truly great film of his first body horror masterpiece. And that is from 1979, The Brood. So we're talking about that next time. Uh, it's, a, it's a fun film. There's a, I think it's on the Criterion channel right now because they Criterion did put out a really great Blu-ray of it a couple years ago. So really easy to find. As always, head to cinemashock.net where you can find links to stream all the episodes in this series. And you, of course, while you're there, you can listen to episodes. Every episode that we've done is on there. You can find links to our Discord, our merch, all that stuff. Uh, that's your one-stop shop for everything about the podcast. And of course, as always, we ask that you rate, review us on uh, you know Apple Podcasts. Now you can do it on Spotify. So give us a five-star review and uh, tell your friends. You guys have anything else? Are we done? No, I just, uh, I think the reason I brought up the science part earlier was I was going to mention that you, you almost called, you wanted to call, like you gave us the option of uh, maybe the science of blood or something like that. Was it? No, the Baron of blood is what it was. That's the nickname of, of Cronenberg. Oh, so I was thinking there was of, something, a quote of his that you had pulled. Something the shape from. of rage was the other. Oh, one. that's a good one. Okay. Uh, well, I was thinking something in there was science. So never mind. Uh, we picked nope. the right one. <laughs> All right, so we'll be back next week. Until then, may the wings of liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other. Potato Man loves ketchup, man. And Johnny has the keys. What the fuck is that? (laughs) That is the only goddamn quote (laughs) from the movie on the IMDb quote page. True, though. And that's a Joe Silver quote. So that's what he's talking He's just talking to his kid watching TV. And as we learned in this episode, Johnny. Perfect. 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 Perfect.